be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. She's a Woman is the podcast that is taking the world by storm right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, She's a Woman! And for the people who love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their incredible stories with you, our amazing listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today, Caitlin. Caitlin, today I have a very special question for you, (laughs) and I want you to answer it. You have to Uh, dig deep in your soul. I know. So my question for you today is, what's something that you love or admire about yourself? Now, I know you're struggling with this question this morning because you're like, I don't admire anything about myself. I know. I mean, you asked me, I think, yesterday to start thinking about it, and I'm, I like still feel so blank. I think especially now, I feel like it's especially hard to think of things I like about myself because I'm so brain dead and I've been sitting in my house doing nothing and not interacting with anybody. And I admire that about yeah. you. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I guess if I had to dig deep and think of something, I would say when I have decided something I want, I'm very determined. It can get me, it can take a while for me to decide if I want something. But once I decide it, I'm very determined and I make it happen, I think. Oh, my God, that is so true. Yeah. Because when I first met you, you were driving all over the country to see the drag queens that you liked the best. And you had a full life already, but you made time to see the people that were important to you and really made an impression on them because of it. They were like, you came all the way from where? Yeah. You know? Which now I'm like, that was insane. (laughs) Yeah, Um, back when you liked drag. Yeah, back when I liked drag and back when we didn't travel for a living or whatever and traveling was like, how exciting, you know what I mean? But yeah, I think that if if I've decided that I want this to happen or that to happen or I want to live here or do that, then I think I am really determined and I can really make things happen for myself. Once it's like in my brain, nothing is stopping me. Oh, it is very true. (laughs) That is is an excellent example. I was going to say about myself that something similar about myself, the thing Mm -hmm. I admire is that I never give up. I have the most pessimistic outlook and I never think that anything is going to work out, but that doesn't stop me from trying ever. That's true. You know, you also uh, don't really like take days off in a way. You know what I mean? You're like, like, nope, here we go. I got to do this because I'm not giving up. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) even if you're not feeling it. Yeah, you're right. I I don't take days off. Like, even on my days where I'm not doing anything related with drag, I'm like, well, I'm going to write 40 pages in my journal because, you know, she's determined to do stuff. She keeps trucking along (laughs) no matter what. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and here we are a year deep into this uh, pandemic. I can't believe it. It's been as of the time we're recording this, it's been like exactly one year since COVID came to New York, at least. Yeah. And we have been through the full range of emotions. Yeah. We've had days where we thought that everything was over and we had days where we thought that things were starting anew and we weathered both of them somehow. And I'm determined to make it through yet another year of nothing. I'm determined, Caitlin. Okay, yeah, it's a, you're determined. You I'm know, determined. you're going to truck along, yeah. And you um, know what? If you decide in your mind that you want us to survive, then you will make it happen too. Yeah, I don't I have have to figure out where I'm at mentally with that one. <laughs> so, I brought this up not only because I wanted to hear what Caitlin admires about herself, and I think it's a good it's part of my optimistic outlook this year <laughs> that I'm making you do that, but because I want everybody that's listening to think about something that they admire about themselves and share it with somebody that you love. Like, I can think of my sister at home right now going to my mother and saying, well, here's something I admire about myself. What's something that you admire about yourself? So find somebody to partner up with and tell them something about yourself that you think is great. Wow, that's so nice of you. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah, yeah. We need that. Life is trash. (laughs) It really, truly is. Anyway, I want to dive into our serious groundbreaking interview, which actually, honestly, today it is serious. Yeah, could be groundbreaking. But first, I have a little treat for you. Every week, we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about fighting back. Do I know this? You don't know this oh, one. Okay, I'm in for a surprise. Yeah, I was dipping into the newspaper yesterday because I was like, there must be something good. And I ran to this good news that is sort of good news inside out because it starts with bad news. I saw in the New York Times yesterday that the Trump administration killed about 100 important rules protecting our environment, our air, our water, and wildlife, and that even though Trump is gone, the damage is still being done. Here are the numbers. 98 environmental rules were killed under the Trump administration, but 14 are in the process of being killed right now. So I was like, okay, I'm trying to be optimistic this year. Is there good news buried in here somewhere? So I did a little research, and this is what I found. A little while back, there was another article about the same issue, but it was talking about all the people within the government, most of them scientists, who are fighting to keep these rules from being killed. Because there are people fighting to protect our environment and our health, Caitlin. Wow. So I turned a bad story into a into a good one. It's a good one. It's good. It's, it's good to know that there's people trying to undo the wrong and that not everyone is in a Trump state of mind where climate change doesn't exist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, I think we when we think of an administration, we think of them being monolith, all of the same mindset. Mm-hmm. But even while Trump was in office, there were people working within the administration and within the Environmental Protection Agency, particularly, to uh, disobey commands from the administration. So one of my favorite stories is the story of Gina McCarthy, the former Environmental Protection Agency chief slash Lady hero, Caitlin. Okay. When the Trump administration asked Gina McCarthy's agents to cooperate with the Trump agenda and just get out and get out of the way, 
She told them something very simple. She literally said, keep your asses in your seats. Wow. That's a direct quote from her. So she told everyone at the Environmental Protection Agency, it doesn't matter what the Trump administration says. You do not have to cooperate. And you certainly don't have to leave if you don't agree with the administration. Stay right where you are and make reports that show why what the Trump administration is doing is wrong. It would almost be the worst time to leave. Right? You don't want someone else in that in that seat that will make it worse you know it's like okay this is horrible but now's the time to stay you exactly. know and, and fight and it's i think it's really brave to stay and fight in that situation because that basically means essentially arguing with your higher ups every single day yeah and knowing that every day you're arguing could get you out of a job anyway yeah, yeah. and that you're gonna watch a whole bunch of terrible stuff happen in in an arena that means a whole bunch to you yeah Anyway, a lot of people had Gina McCarthy's fighting spirit. Scientists throughout the government stood their ground. For example, every time the Trump administration tried to roll back rules that had to do with fine soot, which causes lung disease, scientists within the government responded with loud objections. They released reports saying not only that the rules on fine soot should be kept, but that they should be tightened. Their report said that tightening environmental rules could save over 12,000 lives a year. They refused to fabricate reports and cooperate with the Trump administration. Those people are still there, and I think they deserve to be applauded and talked about more than they are. Yeah, they lasted through the Trump administration and kind of still fought and then saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and so they're still in place now that Biden's in place. But there's still these uh, rollbacks that are set up to happen. So we Mm. really are going to be depending on these scientists to come through and come up with more reports that show why that shouldn't happen. I thought this was good news because one has a lady hero in it. Yeah, maybe we should talk to Gina McCarthy. Oh my God, that's (laughs) such a great idea. Let's do that. Also, uh, I thought it was good news because even though we're still living with Trump's legacy, there are voices that are pushing to erase it. So whatever chance you have to support the voices and stories of people like Gina McCarthy, do it. We want them to have as much power as possible. And I think we don't support scientists enough because it's like, I don't know, I don't think they're as cool or as sexy as like <laughs> celebrity activists. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's sort of backwards in a way. We should pay more attention to like the scientists and mathematicians that like literally change our world. But we, I don't know, give all the money and the fame and fortune to dumb celebrities. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, enough about that. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you like your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews at the end of the show. But now, Caitlin, it is time for our interview for the day, and I'm very excited about this one. I can, I'm excited about all of our guests because they're amazing ladies. Yeah. But this is one that I'm bringing to the table. My cousin told me that I should have a look at this amazing woman. She is a doctor who specializes in gender affirmation surgeries and also has an insane internet presence where she, for absolutely free, answers frequently asked questions from anybody who wants to know something about her field. Yeah. And she does it in a really fun way. And she's 
from Ireland and we love Ireland. We love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just really excited to have her on today because I think she's an incredible resource, not only for people in the trans community, but for people that are looking to have a better understanding of what trans lives and experiences are like and how there's an infinite range of possibilities and experiences. And it's not just, there's no cookie cutter trans experience. And I think that's a really important message. So Dr. Sive Gallagher is her name. She is double board certified in both general and plastic surgery. She's originally from Ireland, where she earned her medical degree from University College in Dublin, where she graduated in the top 3% of her class. Then, seeking world-class training, Dr. Gallagher came to the United States, where she completed eight more years of intensive surgical training. Now a leader in the field of gender affirmation surgery, Dr. Gallagher has founded the Eskenazi Health Transgender Center and Wellness Program. Today, she has her own practice in Miami, but she also reaches out to the LGBTQIA community and beyond with her incredible social media content answering important questions about trans health from a doctor's perspective. And because she does what she does, we're actually going to do this interview a little bit differently today, and I'm excited about it. Well, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you doing today, Dr. Sive Gallagher? I'm good. I'm just coming fresh off a of vacation, I'm finishing up with my last day, so the mind's clear, everything's reset, and I can't wait to get back to work. So, Oh my gosh, that's such a great answer. I feel like so many people are at their peak like annoyance with the world right now, and hearing that you're feeling good is really refreshing to me. <laughs> Yeah, it only took a few days. It was an adjustment. You know, the first couple of days, I'm never any good at doing nothing, but I'm good now. <laughs> I settled in. <laughs> so I always ask this of my guests. We had to make so many changes in 2020 to adapt to the pandemic. In your work, what kind of changes did you have to make in order to make things work? Well, everything changed for me just coincidentally this year because I started a new practice and became my own boss. I started it right around the beginning of the pandemic. So the launch had to be pushed back a little bit. That was the main adjustment. But surprisingly, not much has really changed for me as a surgeon with the pandemic. Obviously, we had to wait until it was safe to operate again and do elective surgeries. But with my practice, it's quite a niche thing. There's a paucity of surgeons who do what I do. So for that reason, many of my patients fly in. So we are used to doing a lot of our consultations virtually to begin with, you know, okay. we, we up, we're well set up to do that to begin with. So the only folks who've been really negatively affected are the international crew. So our European patients, you know, if they want to come over, they're having to quarantine in another country for two weeks, which is obviously not accessible to many people at all, never mind coming right. to surgery. So I would say access from countries outside the United States, those patients have been obviously negatively affected, you know, travel, obviously. But other than that, things have been going quite smoothly. And in fact, a lot of my patients have used this opportunity to recover from their surgery at home. So right. we see a lot of patients actually having their surgery. We, we, you know, it's, we've been certainly busy, you know, in the first six months, way more busy than I would have expected. And 
no, it, it used to be, you know, from, you know, one of the more typical surgeries I would do, I would say, you can go back to work in two weeks. Now I'm saying, well, you can go back in one week, you know, because obviously the physical strain of working from at home is a lot less. It's so incredible that you get to do this work that really changes people's lives. And yeah. that's not something that everyone gets to do. So what I want to do is rewind a little bit. Part of this podcast is telling the stories of incredible women from the very beginning. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about growing up. And was there a moment that you first knew you wanted to study medicine and have this kind of impact on people? Yeah, well, so I was born and raised in Ireland, in rural Ireland. I grew up uh, near the seaside uh, on the East Coast. Not the prettiest part of Ireland, but it's pretty. And I always was attracted to art. Like that was the thing I always gravitated towards as a kid. You know, I just loved drawing and sketching. And that's uh, probably what I did best at at school, you know, because I just gravitated towards and spent so much of my time doing that. So I got pretty lucky that I came full circle and I'm able to use that artistic ability because really at the end of the day, I'm a very pragmatic person. So I figured I didn't want to pursue art as a career, I wanted to do something more useful. So that's what attracted me to medicine. You know, I said, well, what's more useful than medicine at at the time (laughs) was my right. And so I probably had those feelings from probably seven, eight, nine, ten. you know, just be useful. See if I can, you know, get there because I knew it was a a long haul study wise. Residency is difficult on on your personal life, which it certainly is. Um, But then I got really lucky because when I started studying medicine, I could see in the surgeons I was shadowing, you know, as a medical student, you don't get to do anything, you know, obviously as a medical student. So, but in those surgeons I was observing, I would see that they were completely absorbed in the work. They're listening to music and they seem quite blissful. Most of the right. surgeons when they were operating. And I thought to myself, I wonder, is that like painting? I wonder, is it the same thing, the same type of flow state that I would get into as a kid and as a teenager when I would, would paint? So I took a bet on it, and thankfully it absolutely is. It's exactly the same feeling and I guess uses the same part parts of your brain, and it's, it's really just a different medium. So I got very lucky there because obviously, I, you know, I'm able to use my passion every day, and plastic surgery is certainly an artistic field. But I would say the second half of my career was when I discovered gender affirmation surgery. And uh, we all want to make a difference, right, and do meaningful work. And I knew I was attracted to making things look good. I knew cosmetic surgery was a very good fit for me. But I struggled a little bit with, like, is this meaningful? Like, is it meaningful enough? And that's when I found gender affirmation surgery. And I was like, oh, this fits perfectly because... Now, more than ever, I can use these technical skills I've acquired and an artistic eye, you know, for very meaningful work. And, you know, if a patient chooses to pass, you know, hopefully, you know, help them fulfill that dream. So, again, I definitely find this the the most meaningful work I've ever done in medicine. And I would say I've just found my niche. Absolutely. There was a lot of luck involved and bets, you know, and invest many years before I was sure if it was the right path. I, I believe it was. Was there like a person, a particular person or experience that made you realize that 
that was the path or was it just something gradual you realized that this was a field that was available i can i can definitely pinpoint an experience the most hands-on early experience i got was here in the united states so i was at medical school in dublin but i was able to come to atlanta actually to emory university and i just kind of fell into plastics again because i was hoping you know that you, you could apply your artistic eye and your creativity and so i shadowed one surgeon there and i I remember thinking he was mainly doing reconstructive work. Uh, so mainly his focus was on facial defects after cancer surgeries. And I had okay. to re- rebuild the different parts of the face. And what I saw him was, you know, take different areas like muscles and tissue completely off the body and reattach them again, which, which of course is microsurgery. You reattach those blood vessels back underneath a microscope. And I was oh my just, gosh. I was like, I don't know you could do this like that tissue was dead and now it's alive again (laughs) then seeing his results that was probably one of the major areas and then i would say later on probably first time i saw a bottom surgery it was a male to female patient so a transgender woman who was having her genitalia operated on to be more in the line and affirming for her so that again kind of blew my mind because i found that was even next level again because the way the human eye works you know if we completely rearrange a face it's usually the eye is very sensitive to facial features and for want of a better word we can pick up deformities very easily whereas we're not used to looking at genitalia all day long so patients pass very well and the results look awesome you know so that kind of really drew me to that as well you've put so much work into that microsurgery and those tiny aesthetic choices was there a time that you were overwhelmed and you were like i've bitten off more than i could chew i've i can't believe i've that i'm yeah. diving into this field that's so complicated i can't do this well, it's funny. I was just talking to a colleague who's who's finishing up their training. And for me, it was basically burnout because when you finish medical school in plastic surgery, certainly the route I went, I did five years of general surgery and then three years of plastic surgery. So that's eight years of training after medical school. So towards the end, you know, I was what was I 34, I think, by the time I came out. And, you know, towards the end, I was absolutely burnt out. There comes a point you just have to do the thing. And I remember back then, you know, that burnout kind of manifested in, uh, have I chosen the right career? Is this all been a horrible mistake? I remember having those feelings very strongly and taking a few months off and thinking, well, maybe I can just marry rich or something. I don't have to work. <laughs> like I'm a hopeless gold digger. So basically, um, you know, thankfully the bet paid off and it was only burnout. But I think that's probably the one example, the most overwhelming I can think of was just coming to the end of that train. And it's just years and years because you really put your life on hold as a surgical trainee. Like, like surgical trainees are really the unsung heroes, I would say, or trainees in every field of medicine pretty much because yeah. it sort of has an apprenticeship thing. You're supposed to do no more than 80 hours a week, which if you think about it is an astounding amount, but many of the trainees go above and beyond that. And it's just an exhausting time where you really have to put your personal life on hold and it can drag on for many years depending on the field. So would you say it's really important when you run into burnout to take a step back? I know that there are times in my own career as a drag queen where I've had burnout. I'm like, if I look at another wig, I'm going to scream. And I think I've tried to make myself push through it. 
and force it. What do you, what do you think that it was really essential that you took the step back that you did for a few months? Yeah. Yeah. So over the years, like thankfully in my twenties, I was very good at suppressing my needs. Uh, I was incredibly good at it and I could go like a year or more, you know, which I would do. And I can't fathom doing that now because I see, you know, if I don't take a break and I let the burnout faster, all the, you know, you get irritable, your creativity dies. And for me, what I did at the end of all that training was just a complete change of scenery. I actually went abroad to learn some new techniques, but obviously just, you know, learning wasn't anywhere near as intense as taking care of patients as a resident. So it really felt right. like a break. And it was incredible what happened because I went from being, for example, a super light sleeper. I would like wake up with anything that I went back to how I was as a kid. And now I can sleep through everything, which is a little problematic. Sometimes I can sleep through it. It's <laughs> incredible, you know, just in that three months of not sleeping with a pager beside you constantly, you know, it, it was pretty transformative. And, you know, to take that time, because I'm not sure if I would be, well, I, I, I am sure I wouldn't be where I am now had I not taken that time to go and learn those techniques and take a step back and say, you know, what suits my personality, you know. So, again, yeah. just slowing down for those three months probably in the long run, you know, saved me so much time and has landed me in a career I love. Especially in America, we have this feeling that if you aren't pushing and doing and posting on Instagram constantly and constantly adding new things to your, like your number of badges that you have, that you're going to somehow become less of a person or less amazing and yeah. it's it's a really valuable lesson to learn that you can move to new things or take a breath and you still exist. You're not going to vanish off the face of the earth. And I think that's kind of like, I'm really glad to hear your story because that's kind of the stuff that I'm dealing with right now in the middle of the pandemic as a performer. Like, I'm like, well, if I'm not on stage, do I even exist? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's important to remember that you do. You can breathe and not be doing and and still be yourself. Yeah, for sure. And it gives me hope for the future because I a lot of my patients are Gen Z. And so, you know, I'm... I'm I follow obviously a lot of my patients on social media and I see their culture. And actually my faith is totally renewed in humanity. I have great hopes for the future with Gen Z, but that's a a whole other discussion. But it's one thing I think they get, they don't worship at this altar of workaholism that the rest of us seem to do. And at the end of the day that, you know, it's, if you want to step back, it's really efficiency as well, because, you know, it's one of the things that the culture and surgery sometimes, and I, I believe it's improved a lot now, but when I was training, it, it was yet to appear to be busy at all times. And you're, well, what are you actually doing? Do you really need to be here? Can you not like hand over your pager and go hang out with your kids maybe or no? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. But I wasn't always like this. I've changed a lot for sure. <laughs> right. Because I had to, because I just can't persevere like I used to. I mean, the needs come up and they don't go away. I mean, I I just, uh, you know, have to take a breath. Now, I have to ask, because I'm curious now, what are some of the things that you admire most about Gen Z and some of the new perspectives that they're thankfully bringing to our world? Well, I would say the huge thing is tolerance, which really warms my heart because with these kids, I mean, I know certainly... You know, I've had a lot of privilege, obviously, growing up as a straight cisgender woman, 
but I, it would have been extremely difficult to come out in my generation if, if I was gay or, or if I was transgender. I, I couldn't even fathom being able to do that, you know, because even in my generation, if you were gay, you know, bullying was okay. It was the norm. Whereas the Gen Z kids, that's not okay. You do not bully somebody because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, which is quite fabulous. You know, and my, I would see that in my patients and my friends who are in education uh, would back that, that that's no longer okay. And they seem to be a so much more woke and tolerant generation. And so all of the benefits that come out of that, I, I can only imagine, you know, because as we understand it doesn't matter what sort of minority or if, if you're shamed, that is even from your health, that is an extremely damaging thing. So I have great hopes for Gen Z. I think they have a better concept of mental health. I think they're a lot more tolerant. And I think they they don't carry around the shame as much as previous generations, no, no matter right. you know the sources. Well, okay. Now I feel like we're looking forward to a much brighter future because we have a generation of people that are going to make a difference in that way. So that's the second happy thing you've brought to me today. I'm very happy about this. One of the things that I really admire about you is that you took a huge leap in leaving your country behind because you wanted world-class training. And a lot of our listeners are young women who are looking forward to bright futures. And I was wondering if you could talk about what it's like to take a huge leap when following your dreams and sort of leaving everything that you know behind. So I think I ran into it maybe a little bit blind from a certain point of view, because again, in my 20s, like late teens and 20s, I had real tunnel vision for career. I was just, you know, career over everything. Nothing else matters. I can miss the birthdays. I can miss the weddings. It doesn't matter. I, I just need to get this career and then I'll relax. So I I think if I could do everything over, it would be maybe to pay attention a little bit more that you shouldn't always postpone your life because definitely yeah. at the end of residency, you, you could tell, uh, you know, that I, that I missed a few things. And I remember actually, I hadn't seen my family in Ireland, uh, probably it was maybe 18 months or something like that. And I remember going home and it's just kind of a silly example, but like having dinner with my mom and she gave me a, a bottle to open, like a, a bottle of wine. And I was like struggling with the bottle opener. And she's like, when was the last time you opened a bottle of wine? I'm like, I can't remember. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's sort of, you know, and that, that's not a healthy thing. And I think in hindsight, looking back, I should have, you know, because I was the ultimate yes woman. It was like, we yeah. need you to work this weekend. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's my brother's wedding. Miss my brother's wedding. Yep, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So again, to, to understand that it's okay to have needs and it's okay. I mean, in fact, you, you do have to respect them, you know, for a lot, right. you know, it was in line with the conversation we were having earlier. Yeah. So I would say, you know, being an immigrant, it's a, it's a lonely thing for sure you know i'm always fascinated people who uh, are born and raised you know i have a lot of friends for example i live in miami now who are born and raised in miami and i always think it's such a wonderful thing how many connections they have and all right. the acquaintances and of course I, I don't have any of that you know in miami however i would say 
social media has obviously made things a lot easier. You know, it's one of the great things about social media. And I was I was so slow. I was stubborn to get on. I was fake Facebook, you know, back in the day. And so I was so slow to get on Facebook. But then I realized it's it's quite nice, you know, for all the negative things we say about social media. It's quite nice because it kind of keeps your finger vaguely on the pulse of what's going on. So at least I know, you know, if my friend from high school had a kid, you know, I know or they're married or, you know, you have the yeah. vague. Yeah, so so I actually, to an immigrant like me, like that actually means a lot, you know, being able to somewhat keep an eye on things. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if, if I answered your question. I kind of went off in the absolutely <laughs> no, that's absolutely. But yeah. and it's interesting that you should talk about social media because that was going to be my next question. You have this amazing social media presence where you answer questions, frequently asked questions from people about gender affirmation surgery. And I wondered what made you, from someone that didn't want to adopt social media at all, into a person that wanted to share about their field on social media? Well, so when I was getting into this field at first, I could see there was a lot of myth out there. There was a lot of damaging beliefs, the old wives' tales, people, patients, you know, prospective patients would worry so much about things they didn't have to worry about. And there was really poor information available out there. If it was from a respected professional, it oftentimes was a little bit too convoluted and difficult for your average layperson to answer. And certainly I know, for example, when I go to the dentist, I need things broken down or I'm going to yeah. forget it. You know, and I am a medical professional. So I definitely saw a need for good information to go out there. And in the first part of my career, which is really emphasized, especially in academic medicine, I found I was conveying concepts using statistical analysis, making things really complicated, putting them in surgical journals. They would sit in shelves and not really, you know, people wouldn't read them. So obviously the field needs to be advanced and I've absolutely nothing got to do with or nothing against uh, peer review publishing. And there's definitely right. a role for that and I still do that. However, what I saw social media as was just a different platform and a very efficient platform, a different medium, I should say, and a very efficient medium to reach. And now we go from maybe 10 people read that article to possibly hundreds of thousands. So it's a very powerful medium. And that was how I first got into it was to train dispel myths, you know, because I would see patients, you know, having sleepless nights over stuff they really don't need to worry about. So that was the first part of it. And then the second part of it really is there's something very unique about gender affirmation surgery in that unlike, for example, a lot of other surgeries, the patient to a large extent directs the care because obviously the only person, what we're trying to do is affirm that patient. And the only person who can tell us what is affirming for them is the patient. And of course, if the patient isn't educated on their different surgical options, how are they going to know? How are we going to know? So from that point of view, I find it was incredibly important to get this information out there. And if, you know, my patients have taught me many lessons over the years, but I'd say one of the biggest lessons is that humans are such diverse creatures in that it's not one size fits all. Many transgender folks don't want or need surgery. And it's definitely needed to have different surgical options for different folks. And what I find is once patients are educated and they understand, they will tell you these are very well thought out decisions. And that's, in my experience, usually what serves the patient the best. 
I said that I wanted to do this interview a little bit differently when mm -hmm. I introduced it earlier with Caitlin, my co-pilot. And I do want to do things a little differently. Usually I talk about the story of the person completely, but I want to get into these frequently asked questions and some of the questions that you engage with every yeah. day. So I asked you in an email what your top frequently asked questions were, and I kind of want to tackle them because I think they'll be great for our audience to hear. First of all, you said that you had like three questions that you got from the public in general about gender affirmation surgery. And the first one, the most frequent one that you get is what made you get into this field, which I think you have beautifully answered. But the next one was, how come you seem so busy? Is gender dysphoria common? Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting one to tackle. It definitely is. So gender dysphoria is the diagnosis we are treating with gender affirmation surgery. So gender dysphoria is that profound sadness and discomfort with being assigned a gender at birth with which you don't identify. And so the medical profession back in the dark ages kind of had it wrong. We used to think it was a mental disorder, a mental illness if you're transgender and you needed to change what's in your head to fit your body. But now we understand that that simply, it doesn't work. It's, you know, you could talk about the ethics of it is one thing, you know, but it simply doesn't work. So we now understand that the much more effective treatment if we're trying to help patients with gender dysphoria is to change the body. It may be through just simple things like dressing differently. It could be hormones, medical treatments, it could be surgical treatments. So to change the body or help the patient change the body to help um, fit their gender identity. And this concept of gender identity is the most important thing, certainly from the point of view of of the well-being of the patient. So first of all, that's the diagnosis I most commonly treat. You know, here in America since 2008, the American Medical Association, for example, has recognized it as a serious medical illness. And of course, the reason that is because a lot of folks who are suffering from gender dysphoria, if it's not treated appropriately, may attempt suicide. So again, it's a serious diagnosis. So the reason probably that I am so busy is, first of all, we're a little bit behind here in Western medicine, figuring that out and understanding there's a need that these surgeries are important and that a lot of patients have gender dysphoria. Now, the big question is, what is that number? So when I was in medical school, we were taught it was something very rare, like the number was maybe one in 10,000 people. And now we understand that it's probably a lot closer to 1%. Certainly yeah. 0.6, you know, to 1%. So if you think about that, that's as common as type 1 diabetes. You know, okay. and every healthcare professional needs to understand how to treat diabetes, right? At least be familiar with it. So now we're seeing this huge need it is the first part of it. And of course, the second part um, is that now more than ever, thankfully, patients are comfortable coming out. And they're able to access information. Again, a lot of it is thankfully um, because of social media and the difference that has made to so many people's lives that they're not living with this burden of gender dysphoria and, you know, shameful feeling or not understanding what they're feeling, but instead are able to seek appropriate care. And we know from the studies that if a patient is treated appropriately and it's, it's hard to measure this, right? You know, it's not like other parts of surgery where, you know, 
your appendix is in or it's out, you know, so yeah. that's how we know job. But obviously measuring gender dysphoria is a lot more complex. But from what we see in the studies, there's certainly excellent data that these treatments do work and they work very well for patients, but it's an, an individualized thing. Not all patients are the same. So that's why I think I'm so busy. I would say, you know, a lot more patients are in a position that can, they can come out and they come out at all ages and there is a, a lack of surgeons, but that's changing. Uh, you know, surgeons yeah. are, um, and, and again, it goes back to the our Gen Z medical students. They're seeking out this training. It's always, you know, fascinating to me. I mean, today I had three different emails from three different medical students, well, two, three medical students and a PA student seeking out training because they want to be at least culturally competent, So, which, which is awesome. So we're talking about an incredibly necessary medical treatment but we're talking about it in the United States. So yeah. obviously the next question is that people have to ask, unfortunately, is does insurance cover that? And you said that that was one of the big frequently asked questions that you got. Yeah. Yeah. So since I started out in this field, there has been a lot of change and uh, for, for the better, for the most part, you know, the last administration was a little iffy there for a little bit. But, yes. <laughs> but what we're seeing is that insurance companies are covering these procedures. It depends, you know, for example, in private insurance, whether or not your employer chooses to provide benefits or not, but certainly 70% of our patients have coverage and are, are able to use it. So there are a lot of requirements. You know, a patient can't just show up and say, hey, I'm trans, let's do the thing. Instead, depending on the surgery we're talking about, they oftentimes have to have up to three referrals. So a letter of referral from a psychiatrist, a letter of referral from a mental health professional, and then their hormone provider as well. So again, okay. depending on, on the, the surgery, there, there are a lot of requirements that a patient has to meet. And of course, the insurance companies have now become the gatekeepers somewhat because it tends to be in the policy, what, you know, what the patient has to achieve, as it were, before they're able to go through with their surgery. But the good news is a lot of these surgeries now are available through insurance. And California, as a state, which has been covering these procedures for many years, has shown that this is actually cost effective because it's it's a little bit morbid to think about. But if you take the human element out of everything and just look at money alone, there are a couple of publications that would seem to indicate that the cheaper solution is to give the patient the appropriate treatment up front rather than deal with the complications of gender dysphoria, such as suicide attempts and things like that, because they are very expensive. So right. even from a financial viewpoint alone, it seems to be beneficial to cover these surgeries, but obviously there's the human element of it too. And, you know, we, we understand it's the right thing to do and it's the gold standard. So... That's so interesting because I think that people who don't understand gender affirmation surgery think of it as some kind of luxury when really it's about the health, not only of the patient, but of the community. You said also that you have some very frequently asked questions from members of the transgender and non-binary community, kind of in, in the same vein of what we were talking about. One of the biggest questions was, how do I make surgery happen. Yeah. 
Yeah. So by the time a patient gets to me, oftentimes they have been transitioned for years. You know, that would be a lot more common just because it's difficult to make surgery happen. So it's financially difficult. You know, it's obviously once we get beyond, you know, the emotional aspect and the social aspect of it, it is still pretty, you know, financially burdensome for a patient. And even if insurance covers, we're seeing these high deductible these days that patients oftentimes have to, you know, foot 5,000 of the bill plus. So, you know, healthcare in the United States is very expensive, okay? But apart from that, you know, usually how I advise patients, for example, who who are just beginning to question their gender identity or, or, or have these thoughts is, you know, first of all, educate yourself. And there are a lot of good resources online now, uh, obviously my content, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. other than that, you know, there's good groups and resources that patients go to. And most of the medical professional bodies in the United States, such as the American Psychiatry Association, have very nicely written um, information pages on what it is to be transgender and gender dysphoria and that sort of thing. And then the next step probably from that would be to speak to a counselor, you know, if they have access to that and preferably somebody who has experience in patients with gender dysphoria. And then a patient will progress on from that. But again, surgeries are, are difficult to access at the best of times. And it's uh, it's a process for patients. And, you know, the I I did a, a vaginoplasty on one patient I can think of who was 73, who had transitioned in the 70s and frankly had identified as a woman longer than I have, <laughs> you know, so, right. but, you know, it just took so long for all those reasons for things to align for her to be able to get her surgery. But we always say it's, it's never too late as long as yeah. we're safe. Okay. So that leads to, I think the next question, which is what are all of the procedures that you do? Yeah. So the great thing about plastics is another thing that keeps me entertained about plastics is the diversity of the field. So we were, you know, we operate in all parts of the body and pretty much not too much is off limits to us as plastic surgeons. So it's it's kind of easier for me to list the things I don't do in this field. So I don't right. think this- hysterectomies are uh, that's uh, a GYN surgeon is who you need for that and then some of the complex urology procedures so that would be the plumbing for the um, female to male patients uh, some of that I, I, I trained in it but I feel like I can't handle my complications so I don't do that and until a time uh, and I'm fairly new in Miami but until a time I have a urologist who can work with me we're not doing all uh, of the components of creating uh, the genitalia for a transgender man, man. Okay. Other than that, most of the things I'm able to do and I enjoy doing, I'd say what I do most commonly and probably what I'm known for uh, would be female to male uh, chest, so masculinizing the chest. Um, right. Vaginoplasty, of course, so that would be male to female genital surgery and probably female to male genital, genital surgery. And oh, I could go on, <laughs> but those are yeah. probably the top three or so. Yeah. And uh, for those that are listening, you can check out Dr. Gallagher's social media again for stories, the human stories behind all of these procedures that make these procedures so important. And it's funny, you said in your email, you said that one of the last questions that you're asked most often is, why are you in this field? And I think from this conversation, it's very, very clear why you are. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your knowledge. And I hope that everybody that's listening will take a chance to 
look at Dr. Gallagher's social media because it's so joyful and <laughs> so so fun. And I think that if you are outside of the transgender or non-binary community, you think of so much of these topics as just issues instead of human beings. And I think that that's what your social media really promotes is like human stories. Absolutely. And it's, it's literally, it's watching, it's having a front row seat of watching people's dreams come true. You know, it's, it's like the buzz in our office on a Friday when we see uh, patients back after the surgery, it's, it's contagious, you know, and so, so many other healthcare providers are kind of drawn to this field uh, because of that, but it's unmistakable. And I'm glad it comes through in the, in the on social media. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm hoping that we'll be talking to you again soon. Okay, Caitlin. So that was our interview for this week. And I think it's a fun one. Yeah, I liked the way she compared art and surgery and kind of like the fugue state that you go into. And it's just interesting because I feel like normally I think of those two things on totally different planes and totally different realms. Oh, right. Also, she seems to have followed her dream, which I think a lot of our guests have, but she just seems to have perfectly found her niche. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. But, Caitlin, it's actually time for a little break. Oh, okay, okay. And then we'll be right back. Okay, Okay, we're back. Now, first of all, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and review it. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Now, Caitlin, do we have a favorite review from this week? We do. This one says, love this. It's so great that you bring top professionals to share information and educate your listeners. These are very important discussions, doing it all in a fun and heartwarming way. It's a nice one. Yeah, that's great. I um, When you first said bringing top professionals, I thought the reviewer meant you and me. I was like, well, I don't know oh. <laughs> about that one. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, no, but we do bring top professionals. And I, I have been thinking as we look at our She's a Woman podcast Instagram as kind of our yearbook of people who have participated in the podcast. And it's a really great team of ladies. It is. We've got a lot of we've got a lot of variety. Yo, absolutely. From a world class surgeon to just dumb comedians. Yeah. Just- <laughs> so And everyone has unique perspectives and stories, which yeah. I really like that. Who would have thought we would be listening to someone who negotiated with pirates? Right, exactly. Yeah. So I, I and those things come up in these stories, and that's why I love this podcast. I think whenever you're doing a project that takes a lot of effort, I think we kind of talked about this earlier today. Whenever you're in a project that takes a lot of effort, you're kind of like, is this worth it? And when I think about how much I've learned from doing this podcast, the answer is absolutely yes. Because yeah, and that's why. We have to leave us reviews because we so that we know other people are learning and enjoying too, because we will happily live in our bubble of like just loving our guests and loving the podcast. But we it's nice to know that other people are yeah in our little bubble with us loving it too. Oh yeah. In case you think like Cracker and Caitlin are too busy to just like get teary-eyed over some mom saying that we're nice. <laughs> oh. We're not. We no. we love it. We had a rough <laughs> childhood, so we need that. <laughs> 
But enough about that, Caitlin. Now it is time for my favorite part of the show. It's time for the credits, Caitlin. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham and about four pounds of coffee. And then I made it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin and these coffees that we got. <laughs> we love coffee. We love it. It's part of our brand. <laughs> and this podcast was distributed by the amazing Studio 71, who keeps us on track all the time because, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're, we're artists. We're a little wily. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. Wow, Caitlin, I've had so much coffee. (laughs) We sound like the Gilmore Girls right now. Oh my God, I've had coffee, you've had coffee, we've had coffee, coffee. Luke, coffee! (laughs) 